HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry by Julie Guthman. Learn more at ucpress.edu. This week on Meet and 3, we're examining the true cost of convenience when it comes to when, where, and how we eat. Dark stores enable workers to eat without any kind of thought to how they're getting their food or how it might have come to be. DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft in the past have pledged to spend $90 million to try to exempt themselves from the law. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I think there's going to be significant regulatory pushback on driverless trucks. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking beef, beef cattle to be precise. And my guest is Leah Biondo, the Director of Policy and Outreach for the United States Cattlemen's Association. Leah manages the day-to-day operations for the Western Skies Strategies in Washington, D.C., with clients like the United States Cattlemen's Association. The team at WSS helps associations and individuals successfully navigate Capitol Hill. She has also been a contributor to pieces that have been spotlighted by CNBC, The Washington Post, the BBC, RFD-TV, and the National Institute for Lobbying and Ethics. Welcome to the program, Leah. Thank you so much for joining me today, especially at short notice. I appreciate that. No, thank you so much for having us here today. Really looking forward to this. Well, there's a lot. There is a lot to unpack here, but uh, what, let's start uh, just by talking about what the United States Cattlemen's Association is and what you do. Sure. So the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, or USCA, you might hear me say throughout uh, this program today, we are a nationwide organization of cow-calf producers, feedlot operators, backgrounders, and livestock haulers. We've got coast-to-coast membership, you know, all four corners of the United States, and we really are, you know, driven by the producer for the producer. Mm-hmm. And so those that, that so, the, so you have a very wide membership, in other words. That's a lot of people to take in. Absolutely. Now, and how, just, just 
in case people are familiar enough, and I, I'm not I'm not guaranteeing that my listeners are familiar enough, but they might be familiar enough to know that there is also such a thing as the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which I've had a run-in or two myself with, um, and also the uh, American Meat Institute and the R Calf Association. How do you differ from those uh, two or three entities? Sure. So uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or NCBA, along with the Meat Institute, represents all segments of of the industry. Well, I guess more so uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. But when when these folks are trying to represent both the meat packers or the processors um, and the producers, there tends to be some differences in priorities, which I'm sure we'll get into more later. But uh, we we try to represent just those that producing segment because, again, both sides have very different priorities and, and need different things, frankly, when we're looking at the you know future of the industry. Absolutely. So what, what would you say from your, your perspective, what are the most pressing? I just wanted people to understand that you represent the actual producers and you are not speaking on behalf of the processors and packers who in this case are actually kind of an adversarial situation uh, at the moment in the industry. But so, so what are the most pressing challenges that are facing those small and medium-sized cattle ranchers today? I'm not talking about the giant vertically integrated, I mean, not even, actually it doesn't even work that way in cattle processing, does it, or cattle ranching. Almost all the people who raise cattle are generally tend to be on the smaller side. Wouldn't you say that? I would say that that's about true, and we tend to use the word independent more uh, more so because you're right. Vertical integration has not yet reached our industry, and we're fighting hard to make sure that we don't become some of the other industries that we're seeing. Uh, but to answer your, your question, what are the most pressing challenges facing these cattle ranchers today? We're seeing across the country, cattle men and women are, you know, looking at their bottom line and figuring out how they can stay in the black at the end of the year. Our concern, our organization concerns, you know, lies not only in the ability of our nation to continue producing the highest quality, uh, safest food supply, but also in the ability of our producers to feed themselves. Uh, So our organization has identified five of the most pressing challenges that need to be addressed by Congress and the administration to move the needle positively for our farming and ranching families and give the industry a future. And those are securing truth and labeling on U.S. beef and alternative protein products, addressing needed marketing and competition reform, allowing for additional flexibility in the restrictive hours of service rules for independent livestock haulers. You got to forget, or you can't forget, the the animal needs to make it from the farm to the processing plant. Uh, protecting the health of the domestic herd, and then modernizing the beef checkoff program. Wow. Those, that's, those are tall orders, each and every one of those. Uh, <laughs> those are intense. Well, why don't we, let's start with, let's start with your first, with the first pillar of your uh, challenges there, um, which in my opinion is really, is really consolidation in the market and, and, and the, less, the, the lack of transparency in pricing. Um, how are you guys dealing with that? How, how are you addressing the consolidation of, mar- of the market right now? Sure. And, and for those of you who don't know, there are four main meat packing uh, companies that control a majority of the industry, of, of the processing side of the industry. Um, and so for, for us, increasing that competition looks like giving smaller and medium-sized operations the ability 
to compete uh, on a larger scale. And what I mean by that is right now in 23 states, we have uh, state-inspected meat processing facilities, and those state-inspected meat processing facilities can only ship uh, their product, their meat product, within state lines. Um, and, and so what we'd like to see and what we're hopeful to have, or what we're thankful, rather, to have champions in Congress for is something called the New Markets for State Inspected Meat and Poultry Act. And that was sponsored by Senator Mike Round from South Dakota and Senator Angus King from Maine. And, and what this bill would do would allow these state-inspected meat processing facilities to ship their product across state lines. So if you're looking, um, let's just say we are in Laramie, Wyoming, and we want to access that Denver, Colorado market, uh, this bill would allow those processing facilities to do that, uh, to ship across state lines. And what we think that will uh, accomplish in the end is increasing competition in the packer segment, which would help address some of those consolidation concerns. Of course, nothing that we're going to be talking about today is the silver bullet. We are very... Um, uh, very much looking for minor fixes to a whole host of different issues that are going to help address some of these issues that we were talking about and, and some of these challenges that our branches are facing. But um, in terms of consolidation in the meat industry, we really need to be opening up opportunities for small and mid-sized packing uh, facilities to compete. So I'm, 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 I'm kind of dim here. <laughs> Uh, I listened to that with great interest. I was not aware of that, of those regulations, that there was a, that you even needed to have uh, a new um, law that said that you could ship across state lines. Um, because isn't that what the big packers are doing already? I mean, aren't they shipping whatever they want, wherever they want it? I'm a little <laughs> confused by that. Sure, sure. So the big, the big four are regulated by federal meat inspection laws, and that allows them to ship internationally. Oh, of course. Uh, these, okay. Yep. Now I get it. These yeah, state sorry. inspected facilities aren't looking to ship, you know, to China. They're just looking to ship next door. Uh, so, so again, just allowing some flexibility in these rules. And of course, the federal and the state inspected rules are exactly the same. They must meet that. Uh, you know, comparability standard or whatever they call it in the regulation books. But uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. I wasn't, I, I clearly wasn't paying close enough attention to realize that there was a difference between state and federal. And yes, that makes total sense to me now. And so what that would achieve, let's just be completely uh, clear here, what that would achieve would be more competition in terms of the price point that would be paid to the producers if they were able to ship their product to another state where they might get a better price uh, than they would, say, in a local um, a local packing house, which probably would be owned by one of those big four uh, uh, industrial players. Is that is that what we're saying here? Yeah, uh, with with the caveat that um, our our ranchers are producers of cattle. They're not producers of beef, so their product is cattle. And right now, the only options that they have are selling to the big four. Um, so if we have these small to medium-sized facilities online and operating, they can shop around for prices, I guess, and see who's going to uh, compete for their cattle because our ranchers are producing some of the highest quality cattle um, that we've ever seen in this country. And so they're deserving of some of those uh, pricing competition for sure. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Okay. So, um, you, uh, your group supported something called the Interim Fair Farmer Practices Act, which was part of retooling of the Grain Inspection and Stockyards Act. Um, explain what those new regulations advocated for, because that has something to do with the pricing as well, right? Um, advocated for and what has happened since the Trump administration has taken over. Yes, yes. The Fair Farmer Practices would have just clarified some definitions within the Packers and Stockyards Act that would have tipped the scales back in favor of the producer. And so to really understand what they were, we've got to go back to the history of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Um, It was passed in 1921 to regulate the sale of livestock by farmers. I know. (laughs) It was, it was passed following a long list of existing antitrust laws. So we're looking at the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914, the Clayton Act of 1914 again. And, and Congress recognized that, well, these existing laws, that list I just named off, addressed issues of anti-competitiveness in U.S. markets. They did not address the subject of individual producers interacting in the highly concentrated meatpacking sector. So there were no rules or regulations that protected the producers from, from this high concentration. Um, so, so the Packers and Stockyards Act uh, directly addressed this issue with its most critical portion of the law, which is Section 202. And Section 202 has been what you've been hearing most about. Um, the purposes behind Section 202 were to be, um, you know, the the part of the act and the part of the law that protects producers from from these meatpacking concentration and anti-competitive buying practices and all that other stuff. Um, so so Section 202 in October 2017, the USDA withdrew that interim final rule regarding the scope of Section 202 A and B of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Now um, USDA is facing a lawsuit filing that withdrawal. And um, they were accused of violating Congress's mandate in the 2008 Farm Bill, which was to publish regulation that laid out criteria around contracting prices by June 2010. So we're a little bit behind the eight ball there uh, from June 2010. But uh, the organizations that sued USDA were making the accusations stated that uh, without a reasonable explanation for doing so, the agency's withdrawal of the rule was arbitrary and capricious. Um, we've, we've submitted a letter to Secretary Purdue that, that says, um, you know, we urge the USDA's Grain Inspection, Packers and Stockyards Administration Division to carry out its mission of promoting fair and competitive trading practices for the overall benefit of consumers in American agriculture. So I know that was a lot of mumbo jumbo if you haven't been involved in these conversations before, but what we're really looking at here is that there is a specific organization or agency within USDA whose mission it is to promote fair and competitive trading practices. And we're just asking the uh, administration to carry out that mission. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And it was a long fought battle to get that far. I mean, it took the entire eight years of uh, the Obama administration, if I'm not mistaken, to even get that uh, onto an agenda into Congress and and have them vote on it. So I'm sure it's been desperately, um, you know, really quite devastating to the community. Uh, to have co- have you know the the administration roll back uh, any progress that was made on Gypsa, so that that's really um, really discouraging. I can imagine you guys really uh, took that on the chin. It's you know it's just an astonishing um, betrayal, really, of the community that voted this administration into office. As far as I, I mean, as far as I can tell, I mean, wouldn't you say that it's kind of antithetical to what they promised when they campaigned? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, we've, I mean, we were advocating for these rules throughout the Obama administration and now the Trump administration. So we've always been in favor of just clarifying these definitions. Again, they're just definitions within the act that would give producers a little bit of power back in their corner and back in their corner of the negotiations. Right. Right. Um, Let's talk for a minute about COOL, which is country of origin labeling, um, which has also been a hot button issue. And COOL was passed uh, again during the Obama administration. And then uh, a couple and then I think even before the end of the administration, it was rolled back because the World Trade Organization ruled in favor of Mexico and Canada, uh, who claimed that COOL was unfair to them and that it would adversely ex- uh, affect their uh, exports to the United States. Why, why is this such a hot button issue uh, for uh, American cattle producers? I think first and foremost, uh, country of origin labeling is such a hot button issue because there was a lot of contention surrounding its, its inception, uh, surrounding its birth rather, uh, you have the producers, and this is where the differences between the organizations really matters because you have the producers, uh, you know, saying that, yes, we, we do have the right to differentiate our product within the marketplace. Uh, that label that we want to differentiate our product with should be born, raised, and harvested in the United States. And then you have the meatpacking segment of the industry saying it's very costly to separate out these animals um, and, and make sure that we've got everything, all of our ducks in a row, and uh, make sure that there's a market for this product when it leaves our facility. So you're coming at it from two very different points of view and um, a, a lot of money on the line, frankly, because uh, if we were to still have that country of origin labeling in place, we would not be where we are currently um, with with where the prices are in the cattle marketplace because we saw in 2015 after cool was repealed um, and yet that was December 2015 so just at the end of the Obama administration we saw country board and labeling repealed and what happened was just a dramatic drop in cattle prices and fairly immediately too and we haven't quite figured out how to get that market to swing back up yet uh, and we're sitting here four years later so um, we're, we're really looking at country of origin labeling not in terms of trying to you know get a mandatory country of origin labeling program back on the books which would be great of course but we really right now just want to close the loophole that allows meat packers to um, put product of the USA on their products when they're not technically a product of the USA. So let me explain myself a little bit there. Right now, the way that the regulations currently stand, uh, meat packers can import 
product into this country, so something like lean trim from South America, they can have that product undergo a significant transformation within our borders, which could be trimming the product, it could be repackaging the product, it could be blending it with domestic uh, ground product. They then can use the definition or use the label product of the USA on that product and ship it off into American marketplaces. And, and that's perfectly legal the way it stands right now, because when we lost country of origin labeling in 2015, we also lost the definition for product of the USA. Um, so, so right now that, that product of the USA definition is exactly how I described it. We, we know these companies are doing it and we're actively pushing for a truthful labeling program, something that closes that loophole and defines product of USA to be something that's born, raised, and harvested in the USA. Right. And when you say, I'm going to back you up for a second, you said one of the reasons that the industry uh, pushed back against cool was because they said it would be too expensive for them to uh, segregate the the domestic product from um, imported product, which they now feel, you know, no compunction about blending into, uh, say, ground beef or even just repackaging for sale here with a USDA stamp on it. Um, you know, I, I've been to a packing plant. I, I just want to clarify something. Like, there, every time a packer, um, you know, gets a, a herd of cattle into that plant, that all of that cattle is identified by its tags or whatever. So I, I have to say, like, that is the most specious bit of reasoning I've ever heard, that they can't keep them separate. They have to keep them separate so they can pay each producer. Isn't that right? I mean, they already have to keep every single line of cattle separate from others. So why would this provide this this unbearable burden to them? I'm, I'm unclear about that. How do they explain that? I would absolutely agree with you. And as the industry is moving towards greater transparency, traceability, whether our trading partners are demanding it or whether consumers are demanding it, we're going to have to keep more paperwork in line, frankly. Um, when we're looking towards the future and we're looking at things like blockchain, which our organization has not taken a stance on um, yet, but we are looking into the issue and we've assigned a committee to do so. Uh, but when we're looking at, you know, these kind of futuristic uh, traceability systems in the food industry, um, this is one of the things that the meatpackers are going to have to get better at. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, now all of a sudden I saw today, I mean, this is just, this is why I need an outline, Leah, because otherwise I'm never going to stay on the topic. But you saw, I know, that uh, pork producers, if they want to sell to China, they have to uh, reduce or eliminate their use of ractopamine, which I've done a number of shows about in the past. Um, and so, you know, here's another example of where, you know, if you want to sell into another market, say the Chinese market, um, you or the European market, you have to segregate those pigs out. So, I mean, it is just a completely specious, I'm just reiterating my point that it's a completely specious idea. Um, can you explain real quick though, I don't want to take up too much time on it, but I read about blockchain. I thought it was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what that technology would be and how is that different from cool? Sure. So we're still trying to figure that out ourselves. And from what we've understood, blockchain, um, you know, would, would allow producers to trace their cattle from, from birth until it ends up in the grocery store. And um, one of the neatest examples I think I've seen of this is if you look at this bottle of wine, I think it's called 19, 
wine company or 19. I should have been better prepped for that. Uh, but if, if there, there's this wine company out there where if you point your phone at the bottle, it actually kind of comes to life and tells its story. We'd love to be able to do something like that with beef. Um, and I think blockchain could definitely fit into that into that equation. Uh, but again, we, we haven't taken official stance on blockchain. We're still kind of working out, um, you know, cattle traceability issues and what's the best way to, to trace your cattle, whether it's an ear tag, whether it's an RFID tag. Um, you know, we've been implementing, we've had brands, we've had tattoos, we've had all of these things. But what's that next step in the industry for uh, greater transparency and traceability? Those are the things we're still working through um, and are definitely looking forward to, to coming out and figuring out how we can make it part of the future of the industry. Right. I thought blockchain chain sounded great uh, uh, only because um, once you have that chunk of data, it can't be uncoupled from before or after. I mean, it, it really does guarantee transparency. And I thought, I know I'm being vague there, but I don't totally understand the technology myself. But I did think it seemed like a really, um, you know, a very uh, um, effective means of guaranteeing transparency in a supply chain, especially one that is as typically murky as that of uh, cattle is in this market. Um, we're going to take a quick, quick break, Leah, for a sponsor drop. Stay tuned, folks. This episode is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of Wilted by Julie Guthman. Strawberries are big business in California. They are the sixth highest grossing crop in the state, yet the industry is often criticized for its backbreaking labor conditions and dependence on highly toxic soil fumigants used to control fungal pathogens and other soil-borne pests. In her new book, Wilted, Julie Guthman tells the story of how the strawberry industry came to rely on soil fumigants and how that reliance reverberated throughout the rest of the fruit's production system. The particular conditions of plants, soils, chemicals, climate, and laboring bodies that once made strawberry production so lucrative in the Golden State have now jeopardized the future of the industry. Learn why it's so difficult to stop using these chemicals in strawberry production and why the strawberries you find in the grocery store today are different from what your grandparents may have savored. Pick up Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry by Julie Guffman, available now wherever books are sold. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. My name is Katie Kiefer. I'm speaking with Leah Biondo today of the United States Cattlemen's Association. Um, and we are talking about um, sort of the, the the difficulties of being a cattle rancher in today's market, uh, some of the major challenges that face cattle producers around the United States. Um, Leah, let's talk for a second about the truth in labeling, because you guys are spending a lot of effort on um, getting truth in labeling, which from the point of view of, of country of origin labeling, I totally get. But the truth in labeling legislation that you're pushing for is to make sure that people know that the Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger or any other meat substitute is a substitute and is not actually meat. And I'm, I'm here to say that I think most consumers um, are going to get that without necessarily needing legislation. So why is that so important to your industry? Sure. And, and when we're talking about truth and labeling, you know, we've seen these Boca burgers, we've seen the veggie burgers, they've been around since 
before the 80s, you know, they, they've been in grocery stores. Consumers are familiar with them. But what we are uh, concerned with is the development of cell-cultured foods, specifically um, cell-cultured foods that are replicating muscle tissue, uh, fat tissue, connective ligaments, things where these companies are attempting to recreate meat or beef in the laboratory. And uh, from our point of view, those Petri dish proteins are, are not meat, they're not beef, um, and they need to be labeled as such. So a lot of our efforts are focused in in um, the cell cultured protein space. And we were pleased to see earlier this year that USDA and FDA joined forces, joined hands, and agreed to joint regulate those products, which we think is the absolute best possible outcome um, for cell cultured foods. You've got the expertise and knowledge at FDA on the laboratory and pre-manufacturing side of things. And then you've got the expertise at USDA where they are in meat processing plants and facilities across the country and they understand uh, what it takes to get that from product to uh, marketplace. And so um, we're really looking at truth and labeling in terms of protecting or, you know, redefining what it means to be beef or meat. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. I understand that. Um, I still think consumers are going to know the difference. I think that they're going to be looking for um, something that isn't an actual animal <laughs> in its origin, if that's if that is their bent, if you know what I mean. Like if you feel like you you can still in, uh, consume animal protein, you just don't want it to be an animal that actually lived and died. You know, I'm going to reserve judgment on that whole um, sort of moral uh, and ethical rationalization. Um, I guess it's okay. I don't know. I haven't really thought it through completely, but uh, it seems kind of, I don't know what it seems. It seems kind of crazy. Um, let's let's move on though. Let's talk about uh, the impact of the trade wars on your constituency. What What is happening with, um, I know obviously it's um, given the pork industry quite a shot in the arm because uh, the Chinese um I mean, those tariffs have been relaxed now and the Chinese are importing a lot of pork because of the African swine flu. Um, but what has been the impact on the cattle industry? Oof, yes, the, the ongoing trade disputes. Well, um, cattle and beef are, are perishable products, which means they've got limited and time-sensitive marketing periods, which makes them face more unique challenges than some of the other ag, ag products, um, trying to think produce maybe. And of course, cattle and beef are, are something where we've got a, it takes a long time to bring them to market. It takes almost, you know, just as long to, to, you know, birth a, a new cattle or beef. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, yes, they're, they're unique. They're perishable products. And we're seeing in the ongoing trade disputes some, some interesting, uh, things happening. You know, exports are, are critical to our, our industry. We're pleased to see progress on that free trade agreement with Japan. Japan's one of our biggest markets. Um, uh, they're, they're followed up by South Korea and Mexico, actually. So uh, we, again, we're pleased to see that free trade agreement with Japan. We're pleased to see ongoing uh, trade discussions with South Korea and the USMCA deal continuing to move along. Uh, but we are seeing an overall 3% decline in pounds of beef exported this year. So in 2018, the U.S. exported about $8.3 billion worth of U.S. beef. So a 3% decline on that is nothing to scoff at. 
Um, and we really need certainty in our markets right now. And our, our trade partners need certainty in their trade agreements, really. And that's that's kind of, you know, the end of the, the line there. <laughs> it is the end of the line. Because, I mean, as you point out, I mean, I'll just reiterate for listeners, like it takes uh, the gestation period for a cow to give birth. And then uh, it takes at least 11 months for that cow to get to market weight. Um, so you're talking about almost a two-year cycle. So for, for cattlemen who are trying to predict what's going to happen uh, next year, uh, let alone, you know, years following, this this creates an almost untenable position for them, does it not? Coupled with, I mean, I, I suppose grain price fluctuations are another major, although grain prices are so low right now for because of... Uh, uh, because of the surpluses, but that that's another factor that has a big impact on cattle ranching. Um, yeah, I don't know how people are are managing that. We just have to make more Americans no, eat more you, beef. I you guess, hit right? the nail on the head, though. You know, our producers are managing risk. They're managing their operations for several years out. So this idea that they need certainty in their markets is a real one, and they they can feel it back home when they're making those decisions each spring and fall. Absolutely. So what, um, what, what would be your response to the, um, I, this is, I'm just going to go a little generalized here now, because um, I, I just wondered what you thought. I've done a couple of shows around the, um, the class action suits that are being brought against the poultry industry, uh, both by uh, consumers and by, um, excuse me, both by farmers and by uh, like, you know, grocery store chains. You've been following this, I'm sure, Leah, but um, you know that they've been uh, claiming that the prices have been fixed, wages have been frozen uh, sort of illegally. I, I wondered if that, if you see anything sort of similar to that happening in the cattle market? No, absolutely. This is an issue in the cattle industry too. And um, maybe not for the same reasons as in the poultry industry, but utilizing the same mechanisms and talking about the same things on the cattle side. Um, As we mentioned earlier in this show, Section 202 of the Packers and Stockyards Act was meant to address these concerns of anti-competitive buying practice and collusive behaviors. Um, unfortunately, now the Section 202, most of it's been overturned and misinterpreted and misunderstood for so long that we really are getting away from the original intent of the act. And so when we look at that phrase included within the act, the harm to competition phrase, which is what is the controversy surrounding the poultry industry, too, they're looking at this harm to competition phrase. Uh, the interpretation of this phrase has kind of led to Preferential contract deals we're looking that have, you know, increased captive, captive supply by the packers and decimated the price discovery in the marketplace. Um, this this unreasonable requirement we're also seeing within Section 202 is, you know, allowing packers to continue paying premiums for higher quality and value-based pricing without the threat of litigation. Uh, so we're seeing both, of, both sides of, of the coin here. You know, uh, addressing these definitions within the Packers and Stockyards Act is simply going to put a more level playing field um, in in play for both the producers and the meat packers. So, again, we're just trying to clarify those definitions within the Packers and Stockyards Act, and that's going to address a lot of these issues that we're seeing surrounding the poultry industry and a lot of the industry, a lot of the issues we have within the cattle industry as well. Why do you think the uh, the the USDA um, rolled that uh, that uh, section two hundred two back? What 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 was the what was the rationale? 
behind um, sort of decimating that that forward thinking, uh, leveling the playing field kind of legislation. What, what what reason did they offer you for that? Sure. So we were hearing pushback from kind of the meat packing sector that you know rolling back these protections would allow for increased litigation. So in in terms, if we're looking at this harm to competition phrase, if you roll it back to where the producer only has to show harm to themselves in a price fixing um, or a price fixing scandal, however you want to call it, price fixing problem, um, they they were saying that it would open up litigation and, and we would have all of these onslaughts of class Act lawsuits, and we would just see chaos in the meatpacking industry. And what would really happen instead is not putting the burden on the producer to show harm to an entire industry when they were wronged. Um, So just repeating myself again here, if we're looking at the harm to competition phrase and and a producer right now has to show that uh, harm was done to them and the entire industry, Whereas we would rather see that harm to competition phrase be clarified to its original intent and purpose, which is that there was harm to the producer and, and not having to put the burden on them to show that there was harm to an entire industry, which is nearly impossible to do. So clarifying those definitions, getting them back to the original intent would would put us more in line with, with what Congress wanted in 1921 uh, to make a more level playing field for producers in the meatpacking industry. Thanks. I, I just wanted to hammer that point home that be- <laughs> because I just found it so outrageous. Like it was such a giveaway to the industry, just like the caving on country of origin labeling was another big giveaway to the industry. I'm not a fan of the industry. I guess you can tell. I think meat is great. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm a big meat you know, I like it. I eat it. I like it. I promote it. Um, but I just, I think that the way the industry has evolved over the last 60, 70 years uh, is a large part of why rural economies are flailing, if not sinking altogether right now. So um, that's kind of, <laughs> that's why I like to get these points, like camera those points home again and again, just because it's, it's complicated stuff. And if you're not familiar with it, you know, it really, it, the more it gets explained, the more people see, you know, their eyes are open to like, oh, that's what's going on here. Well, um, I wanted to ask you one more. This is kind of a throwaway question, but, you know, last week, Sonny Perdue, uh, when, you know, it, some sort of rally or event that he attended, basically uh, gave a rephrase of Earl Butts's famous remark, get big or get out. H- how did your constituency respond to that? Was I can't imagine that went over very well in the farming community. What do you think? Well, um, I will say we were disappointed in that statement. I think and I hope what Secretary Purdue was trying to get out there was saying, you know, uh, producers need to innovate. They need to, you know, make themselves stand out in the marketplace. They need to give themselves value in the marketplace um, because the, the get big or get out philosophy is, uh, disappointing when you're looking at, you know, all of our uh, small to medium-sized ranch, ranching and family farming operations in this country. Um, I, I will say that I don't think you do have to get big or get out. I think there's a place for producers in the marketplace who are growing a product that um, 
is is going to go either into a niche marketplace or um you know even even putting it into the regular industry supply of beef or meat um they're still important and i hope our producers really took that away from the secretary's uh talk last week and and didn't necessarily take away that you know all of us should be giant you know corporate feed yards and feed lots and while there's nothing you know inherently wrong with that there there isn't anything inherently wrong with being a small to medium-sized producer either there's a place for everybody in the industry and again i really hope that the secretary meant more of distinguishing yourself or differentiating yourself in the marketplace uh but but the organization really uh in terms of how we're we're going to react to that statement um it's just by doing what we've always done, we're always working towards strengthening the bottom line for the independent cattle producer. And that strategy hasn't changed since our inception. Every policy we create, every piece of legislation that we lobby for, everything is driven for the producer by the producer. Our leadership themselves are working cattlemen and women. They understand the issues every day because they live them. They're the ones submitting a Schedule F each year instead of a W-2, so they understand and they know that their livelihoods are on the line, which is why you did see so much vitriol last week towards the Secretary's statement. Yeah, absolutely. So what um, we didn't get a chance to talk about the hauling. Um, so I'm gonna I'm not gonna go go there now because we've actually kind of gotten past our time period here, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. But um, just to close, what do you think consumers need to know the most about the cattle industry? Where do you think there is a disconnect between consumers and your industry? Love this question because I see it every day when I'm reading through the news. And and I want to answer it with something that I found curious earlier this year. I was reading through the New York Times. They had published this beautiful piece that was covering the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada. Uh, the, the article itself was titled, Work Songs of the Cowboy Poets. The author had blended the, the language that he was seeing with the cowboys and, and turned it into 10 short videos. Um, but almost the very next day in the same publication, there was another article titled, No One is Taking Your Hamburger, but it would, would it even be a good idea? And, and the title caught my eye because I thought that the piece might be taking on that narrative that we see so often nowadays that cattle are somehow inherently bad for the environment. But I kept reading and... <laughs> She led into the article with, you know, quote, unquote, cutting back on burgers can help your own health in the planet. And um, one of the things that I took away from that is, is while Americans consistently seem to romanticize the big skies, the endless horizons, the cowboy lifestyle, uh, there seems to be kind of a common misunderstanding of the exact role that cattle play in the carbon cycle. And our members maintain those wide open spaces throughout the West, throughout the East Coast, throughout the southeast, the southwest, through the use of grazing animals. And and when properly managed, and that means controlling the timing, duration, and intensity of grazing, those cattle play a vital role in restoring native prairie species and keeping out the invasives and other undesirable uh, plant species. So what I guess I would hope that consumers take away from this and what consumers need to know about the cattle industry is that the cattle industry and, and agriculture on a whole is a cycle and, and livestock can, you know, restore native prairie grasses, but they can also eat 
waste products like dried distiller grains from breweries and and turn that into a high quality nutrient dense protein. And so uh, producers nowadays are producing more tons of beef with fewer animals and fewer acres of land than ever before. Um, and, you know, cattle not only fit into this, but they also complement the carbon cycle. So, um, I, again, thank you for that question, because it's very important that um, I think there is a seeming disconnect between consumers and the products that they're consuming. And this is one of those examples that I think, uh, you know, folks should really, really hone in on. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I was, I'm glad that you gave that answer. It was an excellent answer. I think that people conflate uh, animal agriculture with CAFOs and think that that's the only way that animals are raised in this country, and that's not true. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of <laughs> environmental issues associated with co concentrated area feeding operations, and I, I think that's a model that needs to go away or be altered in some significant way. But the reality is, is that the land needs grazing animals, that it's always had grazing animals, and that grazing animals are actually great for the environment. So thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to just wrap up by saying, um, tell people where they can learn more about your organization or follow the news on uh, what's happening in the cattle industry. What would be your favorite news source for that? Absolutely. Well, jump on our social media feed. You can find us at U.S. Cattlemen on Twitter. You can find us United States Cattlemen's Association on Facebook. We're constantly sharing industry news, but most importantly, go on your Twitter feed right now and go find hashtag fair cattle markets. You'll see almost an entire uprising of cattle producers across the country. The past two weeks, they've been, uh, you know, participating in kind of this grassroots advocacy, and you can really learn more and engage with producers um, through the, the power of social media. Fantastic. Leah, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I'll definitely keep you in my database because um, you sure are a great spokesman for your organization. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. And thanks to my uh, sponsor today and to my engineer. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a good one. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.